I'm going to just wager here that the idea of the illusion of control is not a new concept for any of you. And in fact, um, it's a concept that sort of rears its ugly head often in the wrong times when you're out of control or things are out of control and you have to come to that moment, that, that emotional moment once again where you realize that control is an illusion. Is that, is that a safe bet for all of us? But why is it a repeating experience? Why is it something we, we know quite well, and yet we have a hard time making it the default moment or the default piece of our emotional makeup related to the world? It's, it's a lot like diet issues or, or food issues. I mean, let's face it, we all come here and know that one of those muffins over there has 700 calories in it. <laughs> 700 calories in one of those muffins. Now that thought just, just sort of wafts by you when you grab it. It doesn't control you, really, does it? It's like, I don't need 700 calories this morning. And especially not 700 of these calories. But it tastes so good. And it, it, it's got a hint of fruit in it, maybe banana or something. So I can convince myself that it's, it's healthy. And I'll make up for it at the end of the day. You know, I will eat 25 less chips and guacamole this afternoon during the game for the 700 calories that I had. There are all kinds of exchanges in life that we make with ourselves or deals and the kinds of, of negotiations that take place. And they take place in an instant. I mean, just like that. And, and we don't really think about it. But the illusion of control is, is, is for me, oftentimes, um, one of those moments when I'm sitting on an airplane, for instance, and the airplane has taken off late. And I think that somehow, sitting in 32D, I am going to speed up this airplane, and it's, in fact, going to make up the time in the air so that I will make my connection when I get to the next space. Or maybe for you, it's a little bit like me. I leave 10 minutes late for something, and somehow I think I'm going to be on time because I'm magically going to make it up in the speed that I use to get there. And oh, please, God, make sure that the Pleasant Valley policeman is not on duty today. <laughs> because I'm going to go over 35 miles an hour. And, and I'm, you know, there's this, there's this sense of, of an illusion that, that exists. Now, is it safe to say that control and power sort of belong as, as um, next-door neighbors or, or linked together? Because it, that sense of, of power, I have the power to do this, I'm in control. 
I, I have that. I think the, the two sort of go together. And as we think about this for a moment, and we think about um, what power do you have? Uh, I, I love Anthony Hopkins. He mentioned a few to Cuba Gooding there. You know, you control the volume on a radio. Um, and if you have teenagers, you don't even control that. Uh, you control the thermostat in your home. And it's always interesting to me to go into a home and you know actually who's in charge in a home by the person who controls the thermostat. I mean, that, that's the, that is the, the lead dog in the pack there. Um, but what else do you really control? So... I want to do a little litmus test here. This, this, could, this could fracture some relationships, and, and, it, and it could mean you watch the game someplace different today. Um, but, but you came with someone, probably someone you know or someone you know, that, that knows you quite well, and, and uh, I, I would just like you to look at those people right now, and, and I just want you to sort of make a, 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 a nod to them. And so the, the question is, are they a control freak? All right, are they a control freak? I'm going to count the three, and you're just going to look at them, and you're going to nod yes or no, all right? So here we go. No, 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 no halfway in between. One, two, three, nod. All right, so how many control freaks do we have in the room today? Self-admitted control freaks? No, 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 no. So here's, uh-oh, there's one up there that's head-banging, so... <laughs> Is that for your mom? <laughs> uh, so, you know, here's the, the thing about being a control freak, that some of us are control freaks on the extroverted side, and some of us are control freaks on the introverted side. Now, those of you who are control freaks on the introverted side, no one nodded their heads at you, because you deserve an Oscar for the way you do life. You know, you sort of internally, you have this presumption that you can control things without being emotional or, you know, it's just this little guidance system. You know, and what happens is, is it typically relates to some of the internal emotions that get twisted and messed up in your life. It causes you to be sort of unwired internally because you don't express your desire to, to see things that are controlled. You see, the, the question here, uh, when we come to how Jesus dealt with control, was a question of where is the power located? Who, who does have their hand on the joystick? Who does get a chance to turn the thermostat up or down? Where is the locus of control of power in your world? And we could spend a long time with this, and uh, we've got some SCU classes afterwards. I'm, I'm going to be in one of them, and, and today we're going to be talking a little bit about this because your story, your narrative, how you have grown up, the people that have impacted you, the, the kinds of, of pain and joy that have come into your life have written a story that really does tell me and tell us 
a lot about how you relate to power and where the power buttons are in your world. I think of them like a landmine. If you've ever been in a country where they've had former landmines and it's dangerous to walk out in a space because there are these hidden explosive devices secretly placed underneath the surface and you don't know where, to, where they're going to be. Early on in my married life, I, I found one of those. I was filling the dishwasher one day and my wife blew up at me. I mean, come on. You know, there, there are some women who are still praying for the day that their husband touches a dish. I see a hand back there. Okay, okay. All right. uh, which is a shame, you know. I mean, but, but I grew up with a mother who, who, was, uh, who was sick. She had a rare blood disease. And so my brother, my father, and I did the cooking and washing the dishes and all that kind of stuff when, as I was a teenager. So I was just used to cleaning up. But, but my wife, on the other hand, grew up with a father who never touched a dish. Never, ever touched a dish. In fact, when he wanted a, a drink to be refilled, he jingled his ice in his glass. <laughs> so, take that narrative, that story of someone who's grown up in that deal, and then they take my narrative, grow up in the deal I had, you know, and you put those two together, and it's a landmine because I'm helping out. She feels guilty that I'm touching dishes. It's like, what is up with that? That's really twisted. It, it, it is, and every one of us has narratives like that that secretly sit underneath the surface. And if we don't expose those, if we don't describe those, um, if we don't then sort of turn them over and over and over and understand how they emotionally affect us, we'll never be fully flourishing as a human. Because those things write the emotions of our lives. The story of the Bible is a story of, of a choice. It, it, it's a story of a way of looking at reality. And, and Jesus comes along and he, he not only tells us about it. In Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives us you know, the, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, the Magna Carta, the, the, the great understanding of the key concepts of, of the kingdom of God that he was bringing from heaven to earth. They're all written right there, very simply stated in those three chapters in the first story of Jesus' life in the second half of the Bible. And then Jesus not only states them, but he goes on to live them. He goes on to, to demonstrate what it's like to have a a space where you say control is, where power is, and, and you live out of that space. I would tend to say that most of us struggle to find that space, that true identity, 
that sense of where we are, who we are, and nothing can rock it. And we try to accumulate it uh, either by material means or by knowledge, and, and, and we try to attain a space that, that makes us something, or uh, we just uh, try to be, you know, uh, today you can kind of be an influencer, which is sort of a, uh, you can be a fake person with a lot of influence, which is bizarre to me, you know? It's like, how, how do you sort of fake flourishing? Uh, you, you can't. But there's this beautiful story in Jesus' life. Uh, a story that uh, one of the writers at the very end of the Bible, the book of Hebrews, gives to us. He, he sort of gives us a, a preview. In, in Hebrews chapter 12, there's a, a statement. In fact, if you were going to try to find this uh, title to this chapter in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. It's kind of like the the hall of fame of faith. All of these people who've gone before us, who God has used to tell the story from the beginning as God decided he wanted a human family. And and he attempted with Adam and Eve and and they broke it and screwed up our world. And so he re-attempted it with Abraham and the nation of Israel. And, and they didn't do so good. And so Jesus comes along to establish once and for all that opportunity for people to live as sons and daughters of God in this world and in the world to come. And so the, the writer of the Hebrews, he says this. He says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter, of our faith, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now, Jesus becomes the key figure here. He, he is, in, in all of history, that, that pivot point. Uh, we measure time on, on his life, death, and resurrection. Jesus came. So he, he's that, that pivot point. And so I think that the idea of power lays right at that pivot point to say, where do I put the locus of control, the power in my world? And the author of the Hebrews is saying, hey, there's a clue. There's a clue. Jesus. Jesus. But Paul takes it for more than a clue when he writes in Philippians, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Paul's writing to these people in Philippi, He's writing to them, uh, and, and there's not a problem. A lot of these letters that appear in the second half of, uh, of the Bible that Paul writes are, he's correcting people. He's telling them to stop doing this and start doing that. And I, but not, Phil, not the Philippi folks. They're, they're, they're just reveling in, in this newfound relationship of connecting to God and being a part of his family. And so oftentimes people will call this the book of joy. Because joy is mentioned more than any other time in this book. But right at the very beginning, uh, Paul gives us a secret to a lot of, of living, a lot of relating to other human beings, a lot of relating to the narrative of our life. Sort of the secret sauce, if you will. I'm going to read the whole 
passage here uh, and, and just pull out the, the ones I, I want. But he says in verse 1, he says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being with or united with Christ, if you have any encouragement by being his child, John comes along describing Jesus' life, and he says in verse 12 of John chapter 1, to as many as began to trust Jesus, to them he gave the right to be the children of God. And so there's this uh, spiritual moment in our lives when we're, we're moving on. We're all born spiritual. We're all born in the image of God. We feel this relationship with God as a creator and a creature. But there's a different type of relationship that God intends for us. It's not just creature creator. It's not just standing amongst this beautiful blue sky or mountains or green grass and being awed by the transcendence of all. But there's another way of relating to God, and that's being his child. That's trusting what he says about you and what he wants for you. It's that allegiance that they sang about in the first song, it's, it's, it's understanding that trust is acting as if it's true. It's not about belief. We believe a lot of different things, you know? Most of you, if I met you at the door and I said, do you believe that that 700-calorie muffin is good for you? You would say no. But 30% of you got it <laughs> and ate it. I know sales are going to go down next week, I'm sure, yeah. So I'm not talking about belief here. We believe a lot of different things. We don't act on those beliefs. I'm talking about a different way of trust. That is acting as if it's true. And those who, who begin to act as if what Jesus said is true, they have this beautiful experience of understanding what it's like to call God Father, not just Creator. Therefore, if there's have any encouragement of being united, being a child of God, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. And he kind of tells them how to do that. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, value one another above yourselves. Not looking to your own self-interest, but each of you to the interests of others. Now that's a radical human ethic. That's an ethic that we find very difficult to deal with. Most of you are going to get in a car today, and you're going to drive out of here. And if you said, do nothing from selfishness or ambition or vain, because rather human, value one another as more important than yourselves. Oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Or the next time you choose a line at a store, and you're thinking, okay, which one's the shortest and the fastest? You're, you're running down. Who, who can I beat? You know, and I, and I get in this line, and I'm, I'm tagging that guy over there because I wasn't going to get in that line, and I'm going to figure if I beat him out of there. I mean, am I odd here? <laughs> Does somebody do that besides me? You know? So th this idea of, of, of understanding that 
I'm, I'm to put your interests above mine. I mean, it, it is radical to the human mind. It's a secret to marriage, for those of you who are married. I mean, it, it is literally the secret to marriage. People come to me and say, you know, they want my counsel. They think I'm wise. They just don't know me well enough. Um, and, you know, say, our, our sex life is really messed up. Well, you know, read Philippians 2. If you learn to put one another uh, uh, above yourselves, you, you'll discover what good sex is. It, it's just... It just applies all over the place. But the beauty of what Paul puts a period on this human ethic with is absolutely amazing. He says, in this relationship with one another, have the same attitude and the same mind that Jesus had, who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He had rank, and he gave up his rank. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a human being. I mean, he gave up the respect of being deity to become humanity. He stepped from the finite to the infinite. And being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. So Jesus' penultimate action on earth, this idea of dying so that humanity could have their debt before this holy God erased was like at the core of the human ethic that Jesus was teaching us. He not only spoke it in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, he acted it out. And Paul describes it in Philippians 2. He gives us this opportunity to understand that I can give up my power. I can give up my rank. I can give up my respect. Uh, I, I can give up everything simply because there is someone else in charge of that locus of power. Paul goes on to say, Therefore God exalted him to be at the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. He's the boss. He, he, he is the one worthy of trusting. His words are true and worthy of guiding us into being fully flourishing human beings in this world and in the world to come. And every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, there's this uh, opportunity that we have to relate to power. We can choose to think we have it as an illusion, or we can realize and operate that 
the power is actually someplace else. That God, there is a creator God who loves me dearly, has my best interest in mind, and despite what I'm going through, is capable of allowing no irredeemable harm to ever come to me. Now think about this. Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is dying. His physical life is going away. And he dies. And then they bury him. They put him in this tomb, this rock cave, and they roll a big boulder across the front of it, or a disc basically in a slot, and they keep his body in there. And, and, and yet, three days later, he comes back to life. And history still struggles with that moment. What happened to Jesus' body? I mean, let's face it. You had the Roman authority, the, the most powerful political military uh, thing alive at the time in charge of Jerusalem. You had the religious authority, sort of the, the, the most incipient, um, sort of uh, gossipy type of thing that ever existed as the Sanhedrin and the religious powers of the day that, that had spies all over the place and stuff. All of that, and yet they, they, they couldn't just produce the body of Jesus. That's all you needed to do. Find that dead body. Parade him in front of everyone. If you could produce the body, we wouldn't be here. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look, if Jesus isn't risen from the dead, then this is, this is useless. But for over 2,000 years... History has struggled to figure out what happened. I believe the best explanation is that Jesus literally came back to life. God demonstrated his ability of power over the dead, brought him back to life. So now, for you and I, it becomes the opportunity. To, can we trust that power? In the moments of our life, when we feel like we're crucified, when we feel like life is, is leaking out of us, can we trust, act as if it's true, that there is a God who, in fact, has my best interest in mind, despite the outward circumstances that are going on in my world? You see, that's the... That, that, that's the the choice we have. That's the pivot point in history. It's that moment of, is it, is it all about a creator God who wants me to be in his family and live as if what he says is true? Or do I want to create my own reality, my own world? And, and ultimately be my own God. I say what's true, I say what's not true. See, that's the choice we make. And it, it has radical ramifications for whether we become fully flourishing human beings. Or we simply struggle in life. Now, it doesn't always feel good. It doesn't always, it's not always, you know, Hershey's chocolate syrup and vanilla ice cream. It's my favorite. And please don't get it to, for me. I can't avoid not having it. So if we had Hershey's chocolate syrup and ice cream over there every Sunday, I would be eating it. I cannot avoid it, so I stay away from it. 
The problem is, for many of us, is, is we, we, we get caught in that struggle, all the little things we can and can't do and that kind of stuff. And we fail to make sort of the, some of the, the bigger kind of things that, okay, I, I'm going to go this way. I don't know what it means, and I don't even know how it feels. I don't even know what it looks like, but I'm going to go this way as a co this way. And to go this way means to start cooperating with a father in heaven who has our best interest in mind. And oftentimes his actions don't feel good, don't feel great. But the trust factor is, does he have our best interest in mind? Let's pray. Father, I, I just I thank you that that you've given me that experience of being able to call you Father, um, and to attempt to trust who you are and what you're doing in my life and what it means and what it looks like. And, and so I just uh, I just pray that as we think about power, um, I get caught in the illusion of power often in a daily basis. It, it drives my anger. Um, it, it drives my impatience. It, it causes me to, to judge people. Uh, it, it's all kinds of things happen to me in, in, in terribly unhuman ways when I fail to understand the illusion of power in my life. But when I am able to see that the locus of control where the power really is, is with you, I can lean into trusting what you say is true. I can treat other people more important than myself. I can serve, I can love, I can give. I can do things that, that don't seem innate to me but yet, as I lean into you, you do things that I don't even think is possible. So, Father, thank you. Thank you for being active in my life and, and wanting to shape me in ways that I don't even see for myself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.